Thanks, Ali. It's great to be here this morning. Thank you for your kind invitation. Uh, I've not been to Hamilton Baptist Church before, so it's great to come and uh, see uh, the place and to see the fellowship here and to worship with you. Uh, as Ali said, uh, my kind of full-time ministry is with the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, network of independent churches of all kind of shapes and sizes and types across the UK, over 600 now, and growing in Scotland as well, uh, with over 30 churches affiliated in Scotland. And we're very encouraged that a number of those are new church plants, so we're seeing some new growth and new life uh, in some of those needy communities where uh, there's such a lack of gospel light. Uh, I live in the south side myself. Uh, my home church is Greenview Evangelical Church on the south side of Glasgow. So let me pass on uh, greetings uh, from the church and uh, over on the south side, I'm married to Jessica. Got three children, one working, one at uni, and one just about to do uh, his hires. So if you're in that situation, we, we feel your pain uh, and the stress. If you've got your Bible there, please have it open at our passage this morning, which is John chapter 5. Just as we come to that, some of you may have seen the film The Untouchables. It's probably a few years old now, but it's the film uh, starring Kevin Costner, uh, who is Elliot Ness, a US government agent trying to bring the notorious gangster Al Capone to justice. And of course, in 1920s Chicago, Al Capone was king. He had a finger in every pie, and the police and the city authorities and business and his henchmen were everywhere. But of course, Al Capone made sure he sat removed and unconnected to all the crime that he oversaw. And eventually, Ness does bring him to court, but on charges of tax evasion. That's the only thing that he can pin on him. But then if you know the film, to his horror, just as the court case is about to start, Ness discovers that the jury has been rigged. It's been bought off. So no matter the evidence, no matter how watertight the case, no matter how many witnesses he brings out, the truth isn't going to stand a chance. The problem is not the case, it's the jury. And in John chapter 5, let me suggest that Jesus is facing a somewhat similar situation. He has made some big claims and he's got the proof. But the problem isn't with the evidence, it's with those he's presenting it to. And that's the challenge for us this morning. So let's read what happens. We're picking up the dialogue with Jesus and the religious leaders in verse 19 of chapter 5 of John's Gospel. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. 
Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to life, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have a testimony weighter than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? May God bless to us the reading of his holy and inspired words. Well, by way of context to this quite deep and uh, full passage, it's good just to set the picture again, because I think you've had a couple of weeks break since you were last in John. Uh, Beginning of John chapter 5, it begins with a miracle. Jesus heals a crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. And it's a miracle that then sparks a great controversy, because the miracle was done on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders take objection to the healed man carrying his mat, because of course to them that was tantamount to working. And this in turn leads to Jesus explaining why he has authority to work on the Sabbath. And in doing so, makes claims about his identity that shake his listeners to their core. Because the man in front of them, the carpenter's son, the itinerant street preacher from Galilee is declaring himself to be divine. God in the flesh, equal with the Father. Verse 18, 
He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It is a huge claim, and of course, if it's true, it is utterly game-changing. And the initial reaction to it, though, isn't humility, but rather hostility. Verse 18, the gloves are coming off. They tried all the more to kill him. But Jesus doesn't back down from it, but rather he pushes even deeper into that claim before finally presenting them and through God's word us this morning with three witnesses to back up his claims. So let's get into this text and let's take it chunk by chunk. So verses 19 to 23, Jesus takes us deep into his relationship with God the Father. Having declared himself to be equal with God the Father, Jesus then wants to make it clear to us that he is not, however, an alternative to God the Father. Jesus and God the Father are not two independent deities who have kind of teamed up together. In fact, he and the Father are not just united, they are completely integrated. Verse 19 The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. They work in complete tandem. There's nothing separating them. There's no secrets, no division. Their relationship, I had to look look up this on Google, is a bit like one of those kind of pantograph devices. No, I didn't know what that was either. But it's one of those devices, apparently, which is kind of very clever because you can put a pen in one end and as you write, there's a mechanism that completely replicates your writing at the other end with a kind of pen which is just stuck in by itself. It's a kind of copying device. And it's almost Jesus giving us a picture here that as the Father works Jesus is kind of replicating that work along with him. That is how close the Father and the Son are together in their mission and activities. To use the expression, you cannot put a cigarette paper between them. But then he wants to tell us that the submission of Jesus to the Father, that is that Jesus follows the Father's lead and does nothing other than what the Father wills him to do, is not because of any inferiority in the Son, just as the Father raises the dead, for example, and gives them life, verse 21, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. He's not a puppet. He's just as capable, just as sovereign, just as much the giver of life as the Father. That is the mystery and the reality of the Trinity. Indeed, when it comes to judgment, what we might say is the ultimate right and prerogative of God, it is the Son who will hold the universe to account, verse 22. The Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. It is before Jesus that every single one of us, every single man and woman and human being who has ever drawn heaven's breath will stand. It is Jesus who will have the final say and give the final verdict on our lives. There's an old story about a tourist looking at the Mona Lisa and the Louvre in Paris and they stare at it for a while and then they kind of mutter to themselves, don't think much of that. 
at which point it said, one of the curator leans forward and says, the Mona Lisa is not on trial. You are. In other words, the Mona Lisa has nothing to prove. It has passed the test. Look at the crowds. The only question is, are you able to appreciate it? Quite a thought, isn't it? Jesus is making his case. He is laying out the evidence that his listeners might believe and have life, which of course is the whole template of John's gospel. But ultimately, it's the listeners who are on trial, not Jesus. In the end, Jesus, not us, will be the one passing the verdict. Now let me warn you, what comes next is theological dynamite. If you've ever wondered why Jesus was crucified and why the apostles were persecuted, I mean, who would do that? Then verse 23, I think, will go a long way to explain it. That all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Did you get that? Not to honour the Son, just as the Father is honoured, is not to honour the Father. Or put it this way, not to worship Jesus as God is to dishonour God. You're not honouring God if you're not following Jesus. You can't honour God if you're not obeying Jesus. You're not honouring God if you're not living for Jesus. Let me just say as a kind of sidebar to that, that's why, of course, interfaith worship can never be true worship for a Christian. Good to have dialogue, good to have goodwill. We want to have those things. We want to be good citizens and good neighbours. But ultimately, any setting in which the Son is not being honoured as God the Father, verse 23, is dishonouring to God. How could a Christian be part of that? No other faith, no other lifestyle, no other method, no halfway house. It is absolutely all or nothing on Jesus Christ. That's why we're Christians and not just Godians. That's why the apostles like John, who wrote this gospel, when they took the gospel out into that pluralistic, multicultural, diverse Roman Empire with its melting pot of religions, were unambiguous in declaring... There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. That's why in verses 24 to 30, Jesus calls on us to hear his voice and live. His is the only voice that can lead us to life. That's the amazing, wonderful message of Christianity. God came into our world, God the Son. Jesus came into our sin-sick, pain-filled and dying world and he came with a message of hope from the God who made us. The God that we reject with all the awful consequences we see around us. And the message was to hear the voice of God, that is to hear the voice of Jesus and to turn to him that we might receive life 
spiritual and eternal life. Verse 24, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. To find God, to know God, to honor God in the Son, to live even though we die. And in verses 25 to 29, Jesus gives us notice that one day, every single one of us, every single person will hear his voice. One day he will summon the graves themselves. He will call the dead to face judgment. Verse 28, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. The good, those biblically who have honoured the Son to life, the evil, those who have not, to condemnation. But the wonder of God's mercy, the wonder of the gospel, is that even as we will surely hear his voice on that day, we can hear it today. Verse 25. A time is coming and has now come. Jesus' plea to us this morning is, don't wait till then, don't wait to that day to hear my voice, but hear it today, now. Let me just stop in the middle of this amazing discourse and say, Jesus wants you to hear and to believe this morning, to bow down to Jesus who is both God and Savior who came from the Father to get you who went to the cross to bear your condemnation. Receive the Son. Come up out of your spiritual grave and honour him. can happen this morning. can happen before you leave here if it's not true for you already. Well, deity exclusivity, judgment, and eternal life, and Jesus makes claims to them all. But, says Jesus, you don't need just to take my word for all this, because they are big claims, aren't they? Verse 31, indeed, if I was alone in claiming this, well, maybe you might have grounds on a human basis to be skeptical. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, Jesus isn't saying there, my word can't be trusted, because actually in chapter 8, verse 14, he'll say the exact opposite. Rather, having just said and explained that he acts in complete harmony and unison with the Father, it would be rather contradictory if he just started to make claims independently of the Father. But no, Jesus isn't making unilateral claims here. There are other witnesses. Witness number one, John the Baptist, verse 33 to 35. John, who all the people at the time had recognized as a prophet sent from God. He pointed you to me, says Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He declared me to be the Messiah, the one who would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit himself. 
Now, of course, verse 34, he was only a man, so John can only take you so far. But inasmuch as you recognize him to be a good and faithful witness, if his testimony helps you to trust me, then listen to John the Baptist. Witness number two, verse 36, God the Father, a weightier witness indeed than John. How is the Father testified that my claims are true? Verse 36, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. Maybe he's thinking back here to the Nicodemus quote. Remember in chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and his first words to him as a perhaps sceptical religious leader were, look, we know that nobody could do the things that you're doing if God wasn't with them. The miracles, it's just not possible. How do you explain the healings, the crippled man walking at the start of chapter 5, the blind seeing, the multitudes being fed, the water turned to wine, the wonders that John will say at the end of his gospel in chapter 21, that if they were all to be written down, all the books in the world wouldn't be able to contain the record of them. And not just miracles. Because we know elsewhere in the Bible that evil powers can do miraculous things to deceive. But these are godly miracles. These are miracles that restore, that bless, that renew and glorify God. Why would God endorse a fraudster by granting such powers? The endorsement of God is all over the life and ministry of Jesus. Truly the Father has testified to the claims of of his son. And then witness number three, verses 39 and 46, in summary, the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 39, the very scriptures that testify about me. Verse 46, Moses, who wrote about me. The prophets, the psalmists, all wrote in anticipation of my coming. Moses pointing to the great prophet, the one that you listen to, or you ought to. Isaiah and the suffering servant, the son of David, the coming king. He's there, pictured, promised, prophesied on every page. He is the point of the story, the great story. And yet Jesus says to them in verse 39 to 40, for all the times that you've read it and you've studied it and you've memorized it, the tragedy is that faced with its fulfillment, you reject it. It's such a warning to us, isn't it? Such a warning to Bible-believing Christians, dare I say evangelical Christians, never to confuse knowing the Bible with knowing Jesus. Never to think that a knowledge of Scripture must mean a knowledge of God. Well, it seems like the jury in the untouchables, Jesus' hearers just really weren't that interested in hearing the truth. They seem to have been pre-compromised and predisposed to reject the evidence, whatever it was. Why? 
Well, not because of bribes, but because of bias. An inbuilt bias against God. You have never heard his voice or seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. Because if it did, you would recognize the truth of what is being laid before you. Jesus says a key reason for that, for that rejection, is the desire for the approval of others over God. Verse 41 to 44, Jesus looks into the hearts and he sees hearts that seek self-glory, but not God's glory. Such a danger for us, isn't it? Constantly have to bring our hearts and lay them open before God. We are so proud. The heart is so desperately wicked, isn't it? So deceitful. Deceives ourselves in the first place. So easy to spin ourselves, to pretend. The only thing we can do is to go before God and just to be open and honest. It's not like he doesn't know. And just admit our motives and ask him to change us and to sanctify us. To forgive us. Verse 42. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. The people who boasted in the religious pedigree. But had precious little love to show for it. And yet of course the great irony. The great twist in a sense is that these were people who it seemed were quite quick to buy into plenty of the claims of lesser claimants when it suited them, verse 43. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. Maybe Jesus is thinking about politicians and people with grand promises. Maybe some of the messianic pretenders of the day who popped up from time to time and then quickly fizzled out. What was it about those people that drew such support? What is it about those people that might draw such easy support and affirmation from us today? Well, it looks like there were people who told the crowd what they wanted to hear, buttered them up, stroked their egos, gave them easy glory. Verse 44, you accept glory from one another. But Jesus wasn't looking for a bit of mutual back scratching. Verse 41. Jesus, as John records, and boy does he record it, wasn't a flatterer. He dealt in, in hard truths when he needed to. His glory is not a cheap, easy, here today, gone tomorrow glory, but it's a lasting and hard won glory. Salvation, friendship with God, forgiveness, eternal life secured at the cross itself at highest cost. This is the wonder and the majesty, the challenge of Jesus in these passages of John. They are so deep, aren't they? We look at these passages and we think, wow, it's almost overwhelming, confounding, inspiring, fearless, exacting. But it's never flannelling, never manipulative. Jesus is somebody who looks us in the eye and he'll tell us the truth. He'll take us seriously. He treats us as adults. 
And yet he is always loving, always self-giving, always seeking our welfare, always giving himself for our highest good. These great slabs of dialogue in John that you are going through are testing, but they point us to the real deal. The one who is worthy to believe, the one who can back up his claims. And so as we close, the big application is John's big application. Will we believe? Will we believe that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one in whom alone the deepest needs of our heart and lives can be met, the only one who can connect us to God the Father, who can secure our souls, who can overcome all the enemies that opposes death, sin, and the grave, and give us the promise of new life, believing have life in his name. And as I said, it can happen this morning. The very life of God, eternal, death-transcending life through God the Son. May God grant that every one of us will know that reality in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for its majesty. We want to thank you for its truth. We want to thank you that it lives and speaks to us, that it takes hold of us, and thank you that it points us to Jesus. Father, let us never stop and rest in a sense and just having a knowledge of scripture as those people of old were content to do, but to push beyond it through it to Christ himself to take hold of the one who can forgive us and give us life. Father, may your word find good ground in our hearts today. May it bring forth a harvest of repentance and faith for your glory, that every one of us in this place will honour the Son. In his name we ask it. Amen.